This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Analysis by the C.D. Howe Institute says that the Ontario uh, Ontario government is on a unsustainable fiscal track. To talk about all of this, Benjamin Dacus is with us, Associate Director of Research, C.D. Howe Institute, and on the line with us now. Benjamin, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Good afternoon. So uh, tell us about this analysis. Where is Ontario heading? And uh, obviously, uh, is this due to 15 years of the same government? Well, it's not about any any specific government. Uh, This is about uh, mainly the long-term outlook. It's independent of uh, whatever parties in government. It's all about the long-term fiscal pressure that you're going to get with an aging, an aging workforce. That means fewer people in the workforce paying taxes, but also, and this, you see this uh, emerge through a number of the different spending programs in the healthcare system, uh, sector, uh, raising uh, healthcare costs, uh, such as uh, in hospitals, but in particular in prescription drugs, uh, which is an area that uh, has been uh, getting a lot of attention uh, these days. And so uh, what we need to be thinking about is how do we, in the long term, get our revenue raising uh, capacity in line with uh, the, the expenditures that we're, we're looking for, uh, looking to see uh, in, in the coming decades. How much of this has to do with the aging baby boomer population and them making their way through the demographic? Well, there's a great saying from an economist named David Foote uh, of, of U of T, a uh, retired professor, which is that demographics explains two-thirds of everything. I'm a big <laughs> believer in that. Uh, so uh, that being said, what happens 20 years from now after this segment of the population swings through? Will we not be, will we not be equally on uh, uh, certainly a very precarious branch at this point? Yeah. So I'm, let me give you a general answer to that, and then I'm going to get very specific as to one specific cause of it. If you look at the long-term outlook under our current fiscal trajectory, uh, in, by about 2050, uh, 2049, 2050, net debt to GDP is forecast to be about double what it was pre-recession, like uh, 2000, 2006 or so. That that ratio is going to be double uh, where, where we are. That's going to mean that interest payments are going to take up an astonishing 22% of uh, total revenue uh, if we keep things the way that they are. That's, again, double where they where they are right now. So that's the, the broad the broad problem. Let me now let me be specific as to what what's you know sort of causing the problem. And let's let's just be specific in say the Ontario drug benefit, which is a, um, a prescription drug plan that covers approved medications uh, for for senior citizens. Now this is a, a fairly universal plan in the sense that um, you know anyone over 65 is it is eligible for this, but they have to pay like you know, small annual deductibles and copayments and and. What we're hearing now from from the, you know, from the throne speech is a plan to even remove those. The o- this Ontario drug benefit alone uh, costs about five point four billion dollars, and on top of that, you're seeing uh, an expansion of a drug plans drug plans such as OHIP Plus, which uh, 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 expanded this uh, renewable sorry expanded this uh, universal uh, drug benefit for anyone under age twenty five. So this Ontario drug benefit, the senior the plan for seniors. It forecasts to cost uh, 3.5% of, of all of Ontario's GDP uh, by 2050. 20, 2050. Uh, uh, so about uh, 
uh, uh, 25 years, uh, 30, 30, uh, 30, 30 plus years from now. That's an astonishing amount for a single program. Is these kinds of programs uh, that are universal not really targeted to the people uh, in, in most need, in particular low income and, and people who are self-employed without drug benefits at work, uh, where we need to be focusing our, 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 our effort? So we can focus on low income seniors who, who can't have their own private uh, insurance plan. Um, we, can we should be focusing uh, on low-income people across the spectrum to make sure that everyone has drug um, uh, uh, coverage either through work or through government. We shouldn't be making government the default option for, for drug insurance. How do we get in a position such as this? Do those that are implementing these policies not know the long-term effects? Do they not run the numbers? I mean, we saw this in Ontario with the electricity file. Uh, and then all of a sudden people surprised that, the, that their rates were so high. Uh, the people who implement these policies, do they not run the numbers? Do they not do the due diligence? So that's, that's a deep question uh, that uh, the, a lowly economist such as myself is uh, perhaps not the uh, uh, best place to answer. Uh, when, you, when it gets to the political incentive uh, in this, you look, you know, electricity is a good example, which is that things like the parahydro plan, uh, you know, sure, they, what they do is they, they amount to uh, a, a reduction in short-term electricity costs. But it's at the expense of the long-term uh, electricity costs. And also, uh, depending on how you look at the books, the Ontario books, uh, it's at the expense of taxpayers. So these kinds of, of uh, limited limited plans that that, that uh, sound like they're uh, g- going to be benef- beneficial for uh, Ontarians end up having a cost to someone, uh, either you know future generations or, or or other people who pay. And it's time to really find some actual savings in the in the system, better efficiencies. And, and our our Ontario uh, economic platform is really about finding uh, all those kinds of different uh, ways to. Uh, ways to improve uh, how things work and everything from minimum wage to healthcare, drugs, uh, municipal affairs, electricity, greenhouse gas policy, you name it. So go to our website and you'll uh, cdhow.org and uh, you'll get a full sense of all of our uh, different ideas. You talked about if we keep things the way they are, where we're heading. How difficult is it to change course? How difficult is it to correct this? Well, if you look at the federal level uh, back in the 1990s, uh, this kind of uh, course correction uh, absolutely was done. Uh, we were in, you know, at the federal level, you know, in, in the 90s, we were in big trouble. Uh, you know, they were talking about the northern peso uh, uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Mm. Uh, Ontario is not quite at this level, at that level, but uh, it, it absolutely can be. Uh, we, uh, we should be very worried about the long-term um, sustainability of Ontario and all provincial finances uh, because of this mountain of, of health care costs that that's, that's coming. That's what we really have to be focused on. Um, many in Ontario upset with happening what happened with the electricity file, and I know you don't want to get too political here. That being said, an election on the way. Is there much that can be done by subsequent governments to change this course? Sure. Let me give you a couple of specific examples. Uh, what the government's been doing on uh, a sort of deeper market reform has actually been, in the last couple of years, Absolutely in the right direction. Let's let's uh, always give credit where it's due, uh, which is a, a move toward away from what we've been so, uh, seeing in the last couple of years of of long-term contracts, uh, 20-year contracts with everyone from natural gas generators. Don't forget natural gas generators, not just wind power and solar power. Uh, you know, solar. Uh, you know, these 20-year contracts are very very costly 
for taxpayers, no matter what kind of generator uh, is um, is uh, on the other end. Uh, a, a continuation of this plan actually makes a lot of sense. There's also ways to further go, you know, further uh, expand these kinds of uh, market payments, these kind of market reforms, uh, to, to get rid of the, the independent electricity system operator as the only buyer on electricity. Uh, you can also think about ways to uh, encourage uh, private uh, private industry uh, uh, electricity buyers to have more direct stake in the electricity market rather than be handed the bill. Uh, there are also ways to uh, improve uh, local distribution companies. Uh, one of the things that actually makes a lot of sense for both municipalities, because municipalities are the ones that own local electricity companies, uh, there's a great way for cities to uh, encourage more consolidation among uh, electricity distribution companies. We saw this uh, start in Hamilton uh, in, uh, with Mississauga, St. Catharines, mm-hmm. uh, in, in creating Electra. But this is the sort of thing that needs to happen all across the province. Electra uh, um, uh, was one of the was one of the leaders in this, but we need to see uh, more consolidation across the province, and in, pr- in particular, uh, getting municipal councils out of the way uh, and, and encouraging uh, private investors uh, to, to uh, find efficiencies where, where they, they they can see them, rather than have uh, municipal councils with their own interests and their own their own protection, uh, you know, things that they're trying to protect, rather than uh, taxpayers, uh, you know, always have that in mind. Uh, what about buying back the shares of something like Hydro One, which is what the NDP are proposing? Uh, you're talking about more private. Yeah, I don't. I don't see how buying back the shares is uh, is going to be in the long term interest of Ontario. Uh, there's there's no. We have to remember that when you have a, a, a regulatory authority, a regulatory body like the Ontario Energy Board, that is there to protect consumers. Uh, and, and approve every single rate increase. I mean, I emphasize every single rate increase from any electricity company, whether it's a private company or a public company. Public ownership and this kind of uh, regulatory body is a belt and suspenders approach. You don't need both. Uh, you can have a st- strong regulator uh, support and protect taxpayer, protect rate payers, uh, and taxpayers get the better deal when uh, they're getting uh, the best best return on equity on investment, and there's no need for uh, taxpayers to be investing in electricity companies, but we do need to see taxpayers investing in things like um, infrastructure, like transit infrastructure. That's the sort of thing that that, uh, that taxpayers should be putting their money in, not electricity companies. Who is this analysis for? Oh, so we actually were, we've been doing these kinds of uh, uh, analyses for many, many years, decades at this point, actually at the federal level. So with the uh, with the rising importance of Ontario, uh, you know the Ontario budget coming out next week, we wanted to take a first crack at uh, at this uh, report uh, being at the provincial level. So Ontario is the first first place that we're we're doing this, and uh, the, the the way to think about this is this is this is what a you know a budget could look like. You know the number of initiatives that come out of a budget. So that's why we we will always release these uh, a little bit before. Uh, any government, uh, regardless of the political party, regardless of the level of government, right before the budget. Uh, considering uh, the throne speech that just happened, and then, of course, a budget a, a week later, uh, the throne speech full of, of costly promises, uh, are you expecting much difference in, or much different in, in the release of the budget? Oh, yeah, in the sense that uh, you know, the government has made a commitment on things, you know, the opposite attack of what we recommended on things like uh, drug costs, 
that while, while we recommend uh, a move towards income testing uh, 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 drug, you know, drug, drug benefits, uh, rather than making it universal, like covering everything for people you know, 65 and over or 25 and over, you know, you know, two different approaches to, uh, to, to drug costs, for example. So I, yeah, that's the one example where it affects many differences. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, the distribution of recreational marijuana. Obviously, the federal government legalizing this later on this summer. Each province uh, is poised to take it, to take control of its own scenario when it comes to distribution. Compare the provinces. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, they say it's about keeping it out of the hands of kids and so on and so forth. But we all know this is about generating revenue as well. What province is set up to? to best, uh, I guess, make, recoup the benefits of this? Right. So I, I look to uh, provinces in Western Canada, in particular Alberta, uh, where they've made it pretty clear that they're going to go with uh, entirely private retailing. Uh, another good example that you could absolutely see is something akin to what you see in British Columbia, in particular with their alcohol distribution, which is that you know I get that at this point it's probably too late to you know shut shut down the the uh, entirely the uh, the uh, Ontario Canada sport or whatever it's going to be called. Uh, what you can have is you look at the BC where they've had it for alcohol. Uh, the private re- uh, retailing uh, sector compete with a government store because at the end of the day, so it, you know, come come July, the LCBO uh, run uh, marijuana stores are the, the number number that we're expecting is going to be forty. Forty is absolutely not enough. Give you a, a, a comparison. There are more than 650 LCBO outlets across the province, and trying to only ha- trying to serve the, the entire marijuana market in July uh, with only 40 of these stores is not going to be enough. Uh, you're going to see uh, more people going to the black market. Uh, you know, still going to the black market because there's not going to be enough uh, access to uh, to uh, properly regulated and properly uh, defined. Uh, government uh, store store, uh, store um, product. So you're so we need to have more stores, and the best way to do that is allow a private market to, to enter uh, where the uh, these government stores just aren't being nimble enough to serve the market. Would the private sector controlling this be harder to regulate, harder to control? A lot of people are fearful if it's not uh, something like the LCBO uh, distributing it that it could get out of hand. If anything, I think it might be the opposite which is that when the government is both the retailer and the regulator, that creates a massive conflict of interest where the, 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 the retailer uh, you know, side of the brain of the government might be saying, ooh, there are lots of ways that we can increase revenue. But the regulator uh, side might be thinking, uh-uh-uh, this is, this is getting a little bit too close to comfort for some of, uh, some of our, our concerns about safety. When you completely separate these different powers, when the government is just the regulator and the private uh, and mark, uh, private enterprises are the seller, it allows that that government to have a singular focus on just regulation and safety and not be conflicted about uh, what revenue that might be losing. Uh, any feedback on uh, the minimum wage increase in Ontario? This is obviously going to become a, polit- a political issue as well as we head into the election. Uh, what sets Ontario uh, up best for the future as far as the minimum wage? Sure. What we need to remember is that a minimum wage is absolutely part of, of a labor policy package. It has, it has a role. But we need to allow for flexibility where um, uh, differences in minimum wages might make some sense. 
Uh, a good a good place to look is actually just across the border in, in New York. Uh, New York allows for flexibility in the minimum wage across the country, across the state. New York City has a higher minimum wage uh, than other parts of the state uh, as it as it moves closer towards that fifteen dollar uh, goal. We recommend something very similar for Ontario, which is to allow single tier and upper tier municipalities uh, to ask for a, a time limited exemption uh, from the from the rise to fifteen dollars and and have that that uh, rise in minimum wage happen more gradually, where municipal councils uh, uh, think it, think that that makes the most sense. For their for the local communities to make sure that uh, the economic costs of, of job losses uh, that you see from minimum wages, higher prices, that sort of thing, uh, don't don't um, fight in their local communities as much as uh, they might otherwise. Because a fifteen dollar minimum wage is going to have a different effect in Toronto than it will in in Brockville or in uh, London uh, or in Thunder Bay or even smaller communities. Hmm. What about ha- more having more money in their pocket? Does that does that resonate? Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, a good example is actually with uh, what we're, we're seeing with the debate over cap and trade. One of the problems with the debate over cap and trade is that the entire government's pl- uh, uh, policy on both raising revenue from uh, uh, price on emissions, which is a very good idea, it's important to emphasize that price on emissions is by far the best way to find find ways to reduce emissions. That good policy is being conflated with how the government is spending the money. And it's the spending the money that is the problem. Because the the way that the government's spending the money is is putting money into subsidies for everything from electrical electric vehicles to uh, apartment retrofits to a whole bunch of other programs that have been uh, universally shown to be a a poor use of money. Mm -hmm. It makes far more sense to take the money from whatever way you want to uh, you know, put a price on of carbon emissions. It doesn't matter if it's a cap-and-trade program. It doesn't matter if it's carbon price. But put that money back in the hands of businesses and back in the hands of, uh, of people across the province uh, through uh, income tax cuts that are geared towards low-income people as a way to really find ways to put, put that money back into their pocket. In other words, make it uh, neutral. Make it revenue neutral, exactly. Benjamin Dacus has been with us, Associate Director of Research, C.D. Howe Institute, and uh, an, uh, analysis by the C.D. Howe Institute says Ontario is on a unsustainable fiscal track. Benjamin, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Talking about Facebook, and um, I guess this all started a couple of days ago. Uh, with the whistleblower and and in talking about a company by the name of Cambridge Analytica, which was hired by the Donald Trump campaign to harvest information from Facebook, they then obtained this information and I guess uh, through your likes and dislikes and in your character uh, characterization, I guess, uh, your fed information that is uh, of use to you. Uh, I hope I'm explaining that right. Let's bring in Derek Sardo, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca. He is with us now. Derek, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. How you been? I'm doing very well. And you? Uh, I'm good. Uh, you have got a topic that is very tough to di- 
to talk about. Well, you know, this, it seems like, you know, and we, I was talking to uh, a lecturer at the University of Toronto in the journalism program. We were talking about fake news and spreading it through the election and such. You know, there was, a, and eventually we got into bias and this, that, and the other. And, you know, there was a time, as I mentioned to him, when security cameras or surveillance cameras were put up, people were outraged because they thought Big Brother was watching them. Then, of course, the, the technological revolution, another younger generation comes up. They don't seem to care about whose pictures where or what and actually have to be educated so they don't goof themselves on Facebook. Uh, so it, it didn't seem that, well, you know, it's public. It's all public. I got nothing to hide. No one cares. And that seemed to be the consensus. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's up in arms about this. How can we be surprised when we're on a public network and they're using our information? I'm not surprised. And, and then you, you know we've spo- spoken about this in the past. Yeah. People share such intimate things online, and uh, you know I, I've I've spoken it out against that because it really becomes public. And the worst part of it, it's not even your property at that point. It's you know we talk about uh, this resolution of of deleting Facebook. I'm going to uh, delete Facebook. That's but like stuff. that's like saying that's like people saying we're going to stop going to Tim Hortons. Right, but but the only point is you can stop going to Tim Hortons and you'll never have another coffee there. But with Facebook, you can delete your stuff. You know, it's so intertwined with all your friends and everything. Yeah. If they don't do it all, all that information is still there. Can you get off Facebook? Not really. Um, I mean, you, you can. You can you can delete your profile and and uh, and you won't be found. But there will still be you know traces of you through. You know, you know what a so web in other crawler words, is? So in you know, other words, web, yeah. A so web in, crawler is, is uh, you know, picking up stories from uh, from different web pages like Facebooks and Googles and, and Bings. And there's a lot of that stuff that's, that's impressioned, and it's already there, and it's not coming down. So the only thing that's really coming down is your home page, per se. Per, yeah, pretty much, yeah. What happens when people die? <laughs> you know what? This is a this is a new uh, topic, and uh, I laugh because uh, not because people are dying, but um, this is becoming an issue in IT. Uh, what happens when people die? And and um, you know, let's let's take a, a an owner of a company or um, or a, a lawyer, for instance, that that has passed away. Um, they they their account or their estate has to keep records for 10 years of all the things that they've done. And um, I'm caught in that as a, as a provider of IT because I have to keep information for deceased people. Isn't that strange? So if you have a client and they've got a web page or something like that, you've got to keep their information for 10 years. Well, uh, again, it depends on the discipline. What, what, uh, but uh, I just use law as an example. Um, you know, all the casework that that lawyer has done is supposed to be kept for an X amount of time, depending on the, the, the difference in law. But even if that person retires or dies, uh, that information still needs to be kept. So uh, now that it's, it wasn't a problem before because it was always in boxes, but it's, that yeah. stuff's not in boxes yeah. anymore. It's all digital. So we have to. It, it presents a challenge on how, how, and where we keep that stuff. Is there a protocol for Facebook when people die? Is there a is there a death protocol? I think there is. Um, you know, it's it's. But the problem the problem becomes if if let's say let's say I died, 
my my wife doesn't have a password to get into mm. my Facebook, right? So there would have to be some sort of uh, injunction there to to let you have access to it because privacy is important. Uh, and again, privacy is important to get into the account, but this is where Facebook has really let people down, I think, because uh, they haven't really warned of the dangers of uh, potentially um, sharing your information. And, and and it's there. It's there. If you if you sign up for an account and you actually read through the the nitty gritty fine print, mm-hmm. you're going to see that yeah. yeah, it's there. You know, we own this information, and uh, you're giving us the right to do it. Uh, th- this last uh, round with uh, uh, with the Trump campaign, yeah, Cambridge Analytica. You know, so so basically, Facebook said. Uh, uh, to this this company that they needed to do some analytics, and Facebook said, "Sure, you can have it, just for for our purposes." And again, and there's going to be so many facets to this, but you can have this for research purposes. Well, they shared it out, but not unknowingly thinking that it would hit other people. So they think it's a, it's hitting about 50 million people uh, that that are affected by this sort of breach. Uh, incredible do, number. Did they is the, is this unethical or illegal? I mean, it sounds like Cambridge Analytica didn't even think they were doing anything wrong here, and, and yeah. then and Facebook says, "Well, oh, we were deceived. It's got nothing to do with us." I mean, right. are, are are they negligent? Is Facebook negligent in this? I think I think they are. I mean, you can't you can't just give that stuff away to to people, even even if they say it's for academic purposes. The issue is, you know, let's say a small startup company has got a couple of smart kids out of out of uh, university, and they start up this company, and it's it's you know it seems to be good, and Facebook says, okay, go ahead and and use this data, but what they didn't realize is how much it would impact. It's not those people just taking that survey, and that's what it was. It was a, started out as a survey on Facebook, and and, I, and I'll just caution all the listeners. So it was misleading to start. It's misleading. So, you know, do this uh, to find out about yourself or whatever it is. Mm. If you see that online, don't do that. It's, it's, it's for a reason. The reason they're making those things is not to give you an answer of, of what your personality is or how good you are at your SATs. Or, it's to gain information from you. And so what they did was did that. So all these people that did the survey, uh, you know, gave personal information. But what they didn't realize is not only the people that did the survey, but all the friends that were associated with the people that did the survey yeah. got influenced as well. Um, we talked before about, the, you know, use the, the example of surveillance cameras and how no one seemed to care and, and privacy issues. Like, the Internet's been around for a while. No one's, you know, uh, other than edu- educating people not to be goofs on Facebook, uh, the pendulum really hasn't swung back at all. Now, obviously, uh, this concern in regard to the sharing of information. Is this the pendulum swinging back? Is this the Internet self-regulating? I think people, uh, after they repeatedly hear these stories, will think twice about what they're doing. So um, studies have shown that the last quarter, Facebook has usage has gone down. I would imagine these sorts of media um, stories that come out will, will, will worsen that. And, and, and people will say, you know what, I don't need Facebook, and they'll delete it. Or they'll be very cautious of what they put up there. Um, you you talked about uh, uh, you know the, um, facial recognition. You you didn't talk about that, but uh, you 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 alluded to something earlier about um, you know privacy. Yeah. 
facial recognition is becoming so important to uh, to this social movement. Um, you, you've, you've probably you, you're on your iPhone. Have you ever used your facial recognition, or you just use your thumbprint? Just the thumb, yeah. So the newer phones aren't using that thumbprint; they're using facial recognition. Yeah. Now, facial recognition. Think about this. It's it's now starting to go into airports. All right, where people just walk through the the, the, the turnstile and they know who you who you are instantly, and so this is becoming. You talked about Big Brother. This is becoming an, a bigger uh, epidemic that uh, people are not going to know that their uh, their information has been taken. They're they're just using their faces. That being said, do you think people are cranky about their picture being taken and information being? Uh, harvested as as such. In other words, you know, they've got their fate, uh, Facebook uh, page. They put the normal crap on it that everybody does. There's nothing too incriminating. There's nothing really that's dangerous. Uh, that being said, do they care about their security or is it the fact that their information is being sold to someone else and then they're getting tailored information, not unbiased information? Correct. So at the Mobile World Conference, this is where they first started uh, with this uh, at, a, at a large scale. Everybody that walked through, they didn't have badges. They just walked through, and uh, their face found out, yes, they're registered, and they let them in. If their face wasn't registered, it didn't let them in. The issue is not that, because the, the, that company suggested that uh, at the end of that uh, conference, all that face data would be uh, would be deleted. Right. The the, the the challenge here is if those companies don't delete that information and sell that information, like you've said, that's the issue because now it's going to go into the hands of somebody else that it wasn't originally intended for, yeah. such as politics. And this is where Trump's going to see some, you know, he hired this company mm-hmm. to, to do this campaign to help him with his social media. Is are, is the Trump campaign to blame? Is uh, is the is the um, the company uh, Cambridge Analytica? Uh, are they to blame? Is Facebook to blame? You know, this this is all for the courts to decide. That being said, would any site be the same? This is just not Facebook's problem, is it? No, no, it's social media in general. Um, uh, but again, uh, you know, is social is 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 Facebook a a, pro, a product? Is it an app? Or is it a, is it a is it a is it a media movement? And I think they're more of a media company than a program. And um, they're trying to always say that you know we're we're just make the platform and people use the platform. Right. But at cer- at a certain point, uh, Facebook needs to be socially responsible to say uh, how and 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 how this uh, product could be. Uh, detrimental to people's lives. And in their infancy, when Facebook and these companies were in their infancy, everybody was wondering, how the heck are they going to monetize any of this? Like, what, where, where is money being made here? And I guess now we know. Well, exactly. You, you, I mean, that was the plan all, all along. Uh, any of these companies are like that. Uh, Google is like that. Google is uh, an information company. They have all the analytics of who uses what and what. And that, do you and, think you know, when they started, that was the ambition? Was we can oh, monetize absolutely. this by selling the information as opposed absolutely. to charging that people was, a service Google to run is, it? Is, uh, is known that that uh, that was their original yeah. intent to have this information to be a to be a uh, 
a merchandising giant because that's what they are. And again, now we're talking devices. We have Alexa, we have yeah. uh, Google Home, and yeah. we have uh, Apple, Siri, and, and all of these things are now, we're, we're becoming really comfortable using them because we're just talking to them. But in, in actual fact, in the background, all those analytics are being kept. Hmm. Do we need laws to regulate this or education? How do you regulate that? That's oh, my point. Or is it, or is it education and self-policing? I think it's education. I think it has to be. I, 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 you know, you talk about these larger companies. Yes, they're at a, they're at a, a gross uh, pace that they have to be socially responsible. But think of a little tiny company, a little startup company in Silicon Valley or in Ottawa or wherever. Um, they're not worried about that at that point. They're worried about getting their product out, people using it. And, and that's really what happened with all these companies. Where's Mark Zuckerberg on this? Why isn't he more vocal, do you think? I mean, because, you know, I don't think he knows what to say. I, I really don't. I mean, I, I thought about that this morning. I'm like, like does he say, whoops, or no, this is what we planned all along? Because they, they say they were deceived. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, and this is just one arm of that. There's, there's a lot of uh, people that are up in arms about this. So, uh, again, you, you heard it uh, a couple months back where, where uh, the media was hounding Apple to be more socially responsible and to uh, f- teach people not to be addicted to their devices. And I mean, I, I think that's a little crazy. There needs to be that self-policing, like you say. Uh, will we see any sort of change to Facebook as a result of this? I mean, uh, again, if you watch the movie and such, it, 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 this wasn't in the plan. It was all about social, and it was all about everybody connecting. I mean, now he's created a monster that's just as bad as the establishment he was fighting. You know, you're exactly right. Hey, that was very poignant. By he, he's beca- yeah, seriously, he's become yeah. the establishment. He's running the show. Yeah, you know, it's the it's against the man, and he is the man now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Will yeah, they, they have to react to this? Oh uh, yeah, they'll 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 have to they'll have to react because if they don't react, I think that the user adoption, especially new users, where where you know they've never used Facebook, they're they've grown up, uh, and and now they can have social media, they may think otherwise. You know, I don't want a Facebook because there might be that 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 anti movement of oh, I don't want Facebook. That's ridiculous. Uh, people know what I'm doing, and but again, you know, when you when you write, um, I'm at McDonald's on Facebook, and then people like it. Well, they know you and your friends like McDonald's. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know, it's simple as that, and, the, and all those analytics are kept indefinitely. Do you think this is the older generation that's concerned about this, uh, overlooking the kids, or do you think this is the kids that that are concerned about this? Well, you you've said that you said that in the beginning of your statement where you said uh, the newer generation really didn't care. No. I don't got any, I don't have anything to hide. But does this change it for them? Is this something they can identify with as opposed to the cameras? I th- I think they will. I, um, especially when they start to think about the implications it has, not just to themselves. But to society, you know, where where ads can be t- Trump's a perfect example of this, where ads can be targeted so, so a guy like Trump gets into office, and and what he's done is he's pulled at the heartstrings of all these people individually with different campaigns targeting different people with different needs and different likes. It, it's it's brilliant, really, when you think about it. Um, mm. But is that what we want? Uh, and and should Twitter be sending Donald well, Trump a check every week for keeping this platform alive? 
<laughs> Twitter is uh, well. Twitter's the same thing, right? They're yeah. the, the, the same thing. Instagram's the same. So uh, let me ask you this: will, will there be a backlash against Facebook if people start deleting Facebook? And how can you do that when every other site's the same? Yeah, they're all the same. But is there going to be uh, a newer platform come out? You know, that's the great thing about uh, technology, and that's the really reason I, I love what I do is because every day there's something new to think about. So, you know, we could be talking, let's, let's talk about uh, Netscape or let's talk about, um, uh, what, was the, what was the one, the music one we always had, the social one, the first one? Um, MySpace. MySpace, yeah, yeah that's it. Remember MySpace? Yeah. Stephen Colbert the did a sketch on the planet and then where is it now? It's dead. Stephen Colbert did a sketch on that last night inviting everybody back to MySpace. There you go. <laughs> that's but but that's a, that's what technology is. So, we, you know, we could, you know, 2 years from now, 5 years from now, we could be talking about Facebook not existing. So this could be, you know, somewhere there's a startup, a social media company waiting for a break. This could be the one for them. This could be yeah, the they situation could come out, that changes you know, it. Yeah. We're we're socially responsible and we yeah. have these levels of security. Yeah, absolutely. You never know what's going to happen. It's like a green internet site. Uh, Derek Sardo has been with us, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca, to find out more. Derek, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good stuff, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We got a call a while ago from uh, some people uh, in regard to uh, other parties, other uh, political parties. other than the basic three that we're continually talking about. So what are some of those parties? Is there more of them on the forefront as people become frustrated uh, with politics? Let's ask Christo Avalis, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Christo, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me. So I've been getting phone calls to uh, give support to some of these fringe parties as we head closer to an election. Uh, Some of them pretty angry uh, that we're not giving them equal time. Uh, Are we seeing more of these parties? Oh, by the way, I should, well, I'll let you tell the story first and then I'll get more information. But uh, we are trying to get as many of these on as we can. Is this a movement that's growing, Christo? I mean, I'm not sure if it's, if it's growing. You know, I think right now, I mean, you have two leaders of, of, the, of the two biggest parties in Ontario right now who are not very popular, and I suppose that that might lead some people to say, well, look, I don't really like any of the two big ones or maybe even the NDP either. And, and so, you know, I, I'm going to look for another option, whether it's the Green Party or whether it's some of the more lesser-known parties. But, you know, I think... It's always really hard to say if these are actual changes in the electorate, because I think that well, a lot of these parties have small levels of support. Again, the Green Party in Ontario isn't what it is in British Columbia, where it's, you know, it's quite the force. Um, but what these parties do have is they have dedicated supporters, and the people can be quite vocal on the Internet or, like I said, calling you and asking for coverage. So it can be difficult sometimes to know, well, what's, an actual groundswell of regular kind of voters interested in a new party and what's, you know, people trying to push, um, you know, their, their personal political brand and, well, and, and, and views, right? Well, is it, a, is it a, a new party with all of the things, the trimmings that come with a new party, or is it just a protest vote? Well, it depends. In some cases, it, it, it really, you know, it's almost, a, you know, history... History, uh, you know, tells the story of the winners. It's not, it's not really actually true necessarily, but that's the cliche. 
And with a lot of these parties, you know, what starts out as a kind of protest vote can turn into a quite a successful party. But, but you know, often, you know, when new parties are formed, they do come with a kind of defined base. And a lot of these parties don't necessarily have that. You know, when the, the Alliance Party formed, it formed out of kind of Western alienation. And the bloc was formed out of Quebec uh, concerns about Quebec's place within Canada. And some people wanted to separate, some people wanted to reform. And the, the, the CCS and the NDP kind of formed out of you know discontent from laborers and farmers and intellectuals. Um, so with these parties, it's really hard to say, you know, is there this kind of organizational and ideological thing that brings them together beyond a kind of protest vote? Or is it just a kind of general kind of non-expressed discontent with the status quo party? Uh, I don't know. Uh, one party I'm talking about in particular that's uh, wanting to get on is none of the above party, um, which I remember uh, getting in contact with us in the last election. And, and to me, I, I thought it was a protest vote. And of course, they've called me out on it. So, you know, we're trying to have them on. I know one of the other hosts had on a local candidate uh, recently. Um, it seems as I've read over their stuff, it's more about electoral reform than it is actual policy. Yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of these groups have that for a couple reasons. One, I think it's it's difficult to to really push forward policy with with a small group. Some of it requires a lot of research, and if you don't have the resources, it can be difficult to do. But I think electoral reform is of interest to a lot of smaller parties, but not exclusively smaller parties, uh, to be fair, because you know there's a feeling that our current system makes it more difficult for those parties and for sometimes the views those parties represent. To be, to be, you know, expressed within our legislation and within our debates in the House of Commons or within Parliament. So I think electoral reform is a kind of uh, something that brings together a lot of people, not just right. in terms of proportional representation, but, you know, the ability. Some people want recall legislation. Some people want yep. more decentralized voting. There's a whole variety of things, but electoral reform is often a consideration. Is there room for another party in Canada? We have three majors. Green are brought into the fray, and I think because people thought that they were growing more than what they have, they pretty much stagnated other than, as you mentioned, for British Columbia. You know, it, it, it really depends, right? I mean, in, in terms of, like, the, is Canada, does Canada have room for it? I guess, you know, the voters decide that overwhelmingly. Um, in terms of, you know, ideologically, is there a gap? You know, some people might say that there are times where the New Democratic Party um, could be more progressive, and so there might need to be a left-wing alternative. A lot of conservatives in Ontario have said at various points and in other provinces that the progressive conservatives or the conservative party um, has tried to has become too moderate, and we need a real conservative option. So there's been calls for a kind of party of the right. But, you know, it's very difficult right now to form a new party uh, under our current system that really does, uh, you know, allocate, you know, disproportionate power and seats and, and, and whatnot to the biggest one or two, maybe, maybe at, at times three parties. And I think that's a big barrier to the creation of a kind of new party uh, that, that has any chance of really succeeding. The last big new party to be created that wasn't a kind of merger, like the, you know, the, 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 the new conservative party federally, um, was, you know, the Greens kind of grew in the, in the, in, you know, in the 90s and, and in the block. And those are both, you know, responses to, to very important particular trends in Quebec about sovereignty 
and its place within Confederation, which had been percolating since the 70s, and then the Green Party growing out of this kind of international awareness of environmental issues over the previous 30-plus years. And, you know, in terms of a new party being created in this context, I don't necessarily see it happening without a kind of electoral reform. Um, can the Greens grow beyond B.C.? Um, why aren't they resonating with the rest of Canada? Will this party last? You know, I think the Green Party probably does have a role. And as you note, in B.C., they're, they're quite important. They're, in a sense, it's not a formal coalition government where the, the B.C. MPs have a seat in cabinet, but it is, in a sense, a coalition with the New Democrats there. They don't agree on everything, obviously. The, the, the Greens are perhaps more more, you know, strident on environmental issues, but they're to the right of the NDP on certain labor issues and then certain issues around minimum wage. They're, they're more cautious, but that partnership seems to be working. Um, and, you know, the Green Party in, in, in the Maritimes has, been, has found some success. In PEI, they've, they've, they have more than one seat right now, and in New Brunswick, they do have a seat uh, in the legislature there as well. So they've been able to kind of get these beachheads here and there whether that translates into federal power, who knows? I mean, right now they seem to be stuck in this kind of difficulty where they can get Elizabeth May elected, but it's very difficult for them to kind of, uh, you know, use that increased profile to find additional seats, either in southern BC where they're, you know, they're generally strong, or in other parts of the country where, you know, environmentally conscious voters maybe live in some kind of uh, concentration that they could actually elect an MP. Is the Green Party strong on fiscal policy? I mean, because it seems when we listen to the Ontario PCs, that, or sorry, Ontario NDP, that, that that's just not mentioned at all. It's just, again, they're just, they're trying to head Kathleen Wynne off at the pass. It's a mass fight for the, for the left. Um, but we don't hear a lot of fiscal policy coming from the NDP. When we've got an Ontario that's, you know, got a government that's been leaning farther left than what a traditional liberal government does. Isn't there the need for that? I mean, doesn't that explain why, the, you know, the, you know, the popularity of the of the Doug Fords of the world? How does can how does the Green Party pull off the fiscal aspect of it? Yet the NDP doesn't seem to be able to. Well, you know, the NDP has certain kind of preconceptions about them, some of which are fair, but I think most of which are not. The the NDP in Ontario is maligned for a Bob Ray government that. Um, did a lot of great things, um, and I think um, gets way less heat than Mike Harris does for doing way less worse. But I think, and, and, and further, Andrea Horwath has made it clear in a way that I think Doug Ford and Kathleen Wynne have been less clear on with the fact that, yeah, she's going to create new programs and she's going to raise taxes on the rich and on businesses, whereas Doug Ford, for instance, has kind of sold this narrative that he's going to find $6 billion in efficiencies that won't include any job cuts, which I don't think is necessarily fair. So I just want to kind of dispel that notion that the NDP isn't talking about fiscal issues, but I think you're right in saying... I don't know, Christo. Like, you know, I've been yeah. doing this a long time, and, you know... Uh, we're seeing polls, and there's another piece in the, in the media today in the press about this, that, you know, the number one concern of Ontarians heading into the next election is health care. Uh, but then beyond that, it's jobs in the economy, it's lower taxes, it's lower energy rates. 
Um, that seems to be resonating with, you know, uh, the Doug Ford campaign, accountability, um, you know, affordability, this sort of thing. Whereas Kathleen Wynne's just announcing billions of dollars more programs, billions of dollars more in programs when we already can't afford what we already have. Well, so I, I, it, I it, it, I, seem, I would... it seems that one, it seems that Ford's message is resonating more with Ontarians than what Wynne's message is. Well, certainly Wynne. Wynne is deathly unpopular and her government's done. I and, and to finish the sentence, sorry, to finish the sentence, sorry, Crystal, yeah. and then I'll let you go, is that, and then it appears that from there, the NDP's even farther left than what Wynne is, but there's no sort of fiscal plan to get us out of the the fiscal situation that people have perceived the, the Wynne government has gotten us into. Is that accurate? Well, I, I, to a sense, yeah. And I mean, just going quickly, I think, you know, that's one of the arguments that a Green Party that could, say, be fiscally conservative and socially liberal or um, maybe as a place. But I don't think so in Ontario. The Conservative Party, if they were united on one thing, it was against the carbon tax. That was the one thing that they could all kind of agree on. Um, so I, I, the Green Party might have a difficult time winning over, like, fiscally concerned voters in that sense. But, you know, I know I think the NDP... Um, and I think I think that their approach addresses many of the issues you underline. People are worried about affordability, but man, if you get a seven hundred dollar dentist bill, then you know people can complain about Kathleen Wynne all they want. But at the end of the day, they either go with tooth pain, or they have to deal with the the fact that they got to shell out a seven hundred dollar bill, and that's an affordability issue as well. And I think that in terms of accountability, I think you're certainly right. And many of the things, and uh, one of the most important things that Kathleen Wynne's credibility has fallen on and her accountability has fallen on hasn't been attacks on small businesses or, or tax increases. It was her pro-business idea um, to sell Ontario's public resources like hydro. And it's been called out for the accountability on that. And, you know, Doug Ford said he won't reverse that decision. So I think, I, I, again, in my perspective, I think that Ford certainly is tapping into something. Uh, he's tapping into a narrative. I don't think it's necessarily true. Ontarians are not overtaxed. Ontarians pay relatively low taxes, given the amount of debt-to-GDP ratio. But Doug Ford's tapping into something. I think that if you're going to see a challenge to that, you're going to see it from Andrea Horwath and the NDP, if only because they're talking about many of the same issues, but with a different perspective. Ontarians feel that they're not getting the services they need. Well, let's provide new services that help them in their day-to-day lives, like dental care like Pharmacare for Everybody, like lower student loans, um, you know, things like that. And I think that Doug Ford's vision, again, certainly popular right now. If there's an election today, he's premier and, and with a mega majority. But I don't know if his vision is necessarily any more valid because, again, whether it's $6 billion in spending or $6 billion in cuts, both of those have a severe impact and they need to be justified. Uh, it and seems it, it, it seems that Kathleen Wynne and, and, and the NDP, for a certain uh, uh, extent, are selling the same message that Ontarians aren't necessarily, uh, I'm not saying they're not necessarily interested in, but certainly not a priority for. Uh, out of the Toronto Star, Doug Ford is finding traction with Ontario voters by talking about government accountability, affordability, cutting waste, suggests a new study a survey examining why the PC party is ahead in the polls. I find it amazing that a media outlet is questioning why they're ahead of the, in the polls because I think the answer is obvious. And then it goes on to say, at the same time, Premier Kathleen Wynne's key talking points, boosting the minimum wage, pharmacare, appear at the bottom of the list of priorities for the electorate. So at the end of the day, one message is resonating, the other one isn't. Um, will we see Kathleen Wynne 
change her plan after she's been doing this for a great uh, length of time? And will the NDP learn from liberal mistakes and start answering these questions that are priorities for Ontarians at this point? You know, I think I think right now one of the things again, Kathleen Wynne's government is done in my view, and that's just my 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 opinion. Yeah, uh, I think that she'll say what she needs to say if she thinks she needs to say it. Yeah. So right now, her strategy is we're going to poach the NDP's platform. We're going to take what we take, and, and in many cases, not actually take it, but but you know, take it, but only for people under twenty five. Maybe we'll get free university for people seventy five and older next from Kathleen. <laughs> who knows? Who knows what we'll get, right? But the reality is that you know, I can't, I can't, I can't speak for for her. But what I can say is, I think the NDP is running on a platform that the NDP believes in, and I think that Ontarians, even if they don't agree, can respect that. But also, you're right in saying that while things like pharmacare aren't necessarily uh, the top priority. You know, some polling has indicated that Andrea Horas' specific plan for dental care has support from over over 55% of Ontarians, um, which would, given that the Conservatives are polling, you know, in the 40s, not higher, it's going to include some Doug Ford Conservative voters who are interested in the ideas around dental care and pharmacare and things like that. So I think that people want services they can attach a value to. And I think you're right in saying that, well, the Conservative messaging is resonating on things like accountability, on things like, you know, ensuring productivity and whatnot, and good jobs through, you know, helping small businesses. I think the reality is that they're going to see a value, just like they do on a lower tax cut, if they can get dental care. And a lot of people in this province don't have dental care. And if you're voting on pocketbook issues, then, you know, that's something to consider. So, yeah, right now, the Conservatives are certainly doing it. But I think the NDP's message is clear. They're going to run in a kind of progressive vision. And as to the Liberals, I mean, I'm really not sure what they're going to do. They might well tack back to the centre to try to find disaffected Conservatives who maybe like the Patrick Brown plan but don't like Doug Ford for his image, almost like the the, the disillusioned Republican-educated people in the States right now who – don't like Democrats, but they don't like Trump either. Mm. And then I'm not saying Doug Ford is Trump, but you know that maybe that's win strategy. But it appears right now she's going to try to um, try to tack to the center left. But I don't know if people are there with her. People either want, I think, bold progressive change or they want a bold conservative change. It, and I think she's caught in the middle. It seems in the last elections, and, and maybe not so much now, but in, in the last set of elections, the middle class was the key word. I mean, my goodness, the middle class was mentioned over and over and over. And we've got to, you know, we're, we're trying to bring more people to the middle class, the middle class, the middle class, and, and both federally and provincially. Uh, that being said, have we concentrated so much in bringing people to the middle class that we've forgotten the middle class who do represent the majority? I mean, it, it really depends. One of the problems is that, you know, as a scholar and as a political analyst, that, those words mean very different things. Middle class in a scholarly sense could mean people who don't need, who, who are like doctors, lawyers, professors. It, it would not even include a majority of the population. It would be basically a, a sliver of people who, regardless of their income, are, you know, disconnected from kind of daily wage labor in a sense or have a kind of certain independence. And in, the, and in our political parlance, uh, you know, I think 75% of people, let's just say, would identify as middle class. So it's not necessarily the most helpful term. I think, in a sense, that you're right. The rhetoric from all three parties is kind of focused on the middle class, but with different lenses on how to do it. 
But I do think in this election, um, you're going to see, and you've been seeing it from all three parties, especially the conservatives in the NDP in some ways, a reach out to um, non-middle class people, people who we would maybe consider poor. Doug Ford, and the plan's not fully out yet, has said that he's going to make it so that Ontarians making 30K less or, or 30K a year or less won't pay taxes. And that's a, you know, 30K a year or less isn't really a middle class salary. And Andrea Horwath has said that the dental plan will, you know, be uh, universal, but it'll be unequivocally free for people making 30K or less. And those are two policy platforms reaching out to the poor and not the middle class. And frankly, I think we need to see that mm. because I think the middle class has gotten too much rhetorical attention. And I would disagree with you in saying that the middle class has been forgotten. I think they get much more attention than they potentially deserve, given that our poor are as poor now as they've been in the 1980s, and we're a much richer society for it. Christo Avalis is with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Postdoctoral Fellow in History at the University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.